All right, that was my bad, man. I didn't have my mixer turned on. That's all right. I was freaking out because I'm nearly a Luddite, and so I didn't really know if I was doing something right. I think this is my second Zoom call. We've done a few things on Google, some or other. Hangouts, probably. Google yeah, Hangouts. Yeah. Yeah. We've done that for some about meetings, but I've only been on one other Zoom call. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, hey, Johnny, I, th I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Uh, yeah. You, you're actually someone that I've had a couple of people that listen to my podcast request that you come on. So, Really? Yeah. Uh, you know, Meredith? Yeah. Meredith, yeah. She, she was like, hey, you should do one with him. She listens to the podcast a lot. And I was like, great idea. But uh, I, somebody else, maybe Josh McMillan, uh, said that, that you would be a good guest, right? Okay. Well, I've, I've done a few different podcasts. Most of them have been geared toward conservation and environmental issues. Um, I think I did one, did one for Arkansas Tech University uh, after I spoke there. But I think, yeah, all the rest of them have been outdoor stuff. Yeah. So yeah. This, this would be a first general conversation, I guess. Hey, well, you know, I definitely do want to focus on, you know, stuff that you're into. Um, another mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Billy Reader, he, yeah. he said uh, that he would describe you as someone who could basically explain our relationship, human beings with the natural world in every conceivable way. So pretty... <laughs> pretty Ooh, interesting bar. <laughs> yeah all right so that that sets the bar for our conversation but yeah he said said something like that that was uh it was pretty deep which i guess billy does some writing for for your magazine right yeah he's done some in the past yep he uh he hasn't done any in a while but but uh yeah i think he's reaching out to some bigger venues now um uh, but yeah uh and i've known billy lordy a long time I, I don't know. Uh, probably at least, probably about a decade, more, more than a decade, I guess. So, yeah. yeah, he's he's been on the podcast a couple of times, and man, I just really like that guy. He's trained with martial arts with me, been to the gym, so uh, great dude. I love talking to him. But um, man, one thing I I, I kind of interested in about you, Johnny, is just like looking at your website, looking at your blog, looking at your magazine, like just different things that you're involved in it seems like you have really taken uh all of your interests which would you know conservation hunting no matter what they are you've really packaged them nicely into something that you i guess make a living with is that correct yeah a meager living but i make a living um that's actually was the reason that i chose to go into journalism and writing um and i don't know how much you know about my backstory but uh I uh, went back to college at age 40. Wow. Uh, I'd, I'd actually started back, I graduated from high school in 89 and started at, at college course the following semester and was pursuing a degree in biology and uh, dropped out for all kinds of silly reasons and then did all kinds of other things. Uh, I've owned a convenience store, rental property, been in insurance sales, owned a hog farm. Uh, I've done a lot. And uh, how can I put this? And when 2008, when the recession happened, I was given an opportunity to reset my life. And uh, writing is something I always wanted to do, but 
I, I didn't I didn't think I could do it. I thought it was something you had to be born with, had to have this, you know, magical skill you were just in, endowed with from birth. But um, I went back to college to finish my degree in biology. And at, at the same time, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to want to write a few things just, just to see if I can do this. And so I, I wrote an essay and uh, sent it off to an editor I knew. And I just asked him in the email, I said, man, can I do this? I mean, is this something you think I can sell this stuff? And he said, yeah, he said, I'll buy this one from you. And so then it took off. And uh, after my first semester back at, at Tech, I decided to change my major to journalism and a long way around the barn. The main reason is journalism uh, and writing gives me an opportunity to explore and uh, learn about anything I want to learn about in greater depth. And, you know, along the way you get paid a little bit. Uh, that's my job is basically to learn. Uh, so, you know, I enjoy that. that and that's, that's how I've tried to set up my life, uh, trying to find a way. Uh, David, I don't know if you're familiar with David Quammen. He's a great writer. He's written one of my favorite books, Monsters of God. But he has a quote that goes something like, uh, he said, don't, don't try to figure out a way to make a lot of money. Just try to find a way to learn and have all these great experiences and try to figure out a way to turn that into a way to make a meager income. And yes. that's, that's kind of been my guiding light. Um, and so I've been able to do that. I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, about is a cornerstone of that. Um, and uh, about the River Valley Magazine here in Russellville, that was one of the first places I sold uh, some, some writing to when the founder and editor then, Diane Edwards, was, uh, was there. She passed away in 2013. But uh, she, she bought some of my stuff and was kind of a mentor to me. Uh, and so, again, with that cornerstone is, is, is income and, and, and a you know, steady place to do work, I've been able to branch out and do other stuff. Yeah. And man, you've got uh, what seems to be, like I just said, like a real diverse background and approach. I, and I like how creatively you've packaged all your stuff. Like I have a lot of interest myself and they're, they're kind of interrelated, but also <laughs> it's like, well, how do I get all this out there without only talking about martial arts or only talking yeah. about history or only talking about the movies I like or whatever it is, you just, you got to package it. But <clears throat> what were you doing with biology? Like, I mean, that makes sense that you would be interested. Were you doing like wildlife and fisheries or what? Yeah. Wildlife and fisheries. And I, I, that was the, the first, that was what I wanted to do at first. I think I was probably veering off into more of a general, I, I didn't really have a plan. Uh, when I went back to school, it was because I thought I needed to go back to school and I didn't have a solid plan for what I wanted to do afterward. I was mainly going back for the education. I need to learn stuff. And it was kind of, a, you know, again, a tumultuous time in my life. And also I was 40 years old. So I was getting close to that midlife crisis thing and reevaluating some things and some choices I'd made and, and the, the motives behind the, the choices I'd made. And, um, Again, going back to school, when I originally started, yeah, I was all about, I can nerd out on some biology stuff. Uh, but when I started back at 40, it was more like, I, I'm not really sure what I need to do, but I know I need, need to be back in school right now. And the best thing I could come up with was continue my education in biology. But again, that was very short lived. Um, I had a couple, again, one semester, I think, and I'd taken a journalism class and, and I sold a few pieces of writing to some other places. And I thought, no, this is what I need to do. 
but the biology, I do have a minor in biology and that has actually informed a lot of what I write about. Uh, it's, it makes it easier. I think when I'm, uh, one of the last bigger pieces I wrote was for Arkansas Life about uh, Bob White Quail and how they're, they're doing habitat restoration to bring population back up. And so when I'm talking to biologists, and of course I'm not a biologist, I don't have that level of knowledge, but they can throw stuff out at me and I can absorb, I can, uh, and if I don't, you know, totally understand the concept, I can, don't have to go very far to find it. Um, so the biology, you know, uh, actually going into biology was almost the same as going into writing uh, when I was going to get my, finish my degree. It was an excuse to learn about a lot of different stuff. I just didn't know which direction it was going to take. Yeah, I can, man, I can uh, definitely get behind that. Like when I, we have a similar story, by the way. Uh, I'm only 33, right? But I gra graduated, went to college, get, made the dean's list my first semester, dropped out my second semester, didn't know what I wanted to do, was not confident, bounced around some different jobs, started selling cars, then the recession hit. Then I go on unemployment for 17 months. But I tell, like, I keep teach college now. I tell my students all the time, like, hey, I've dropped out three times, and now I'm up here <laughs> giving you yeah. this test. What do you guys think about that? And they're like, oh, man. But, you know, I was able to leverage that recession in a, in a very similar way to come back. And at the time, I was, like, doing martial arts. I mean, you're probably familiar with, with what Cor and I do here at the gym a little mm -hmm. bit. But I was like, man, I need to get a – I should do an MBA, right? I should get, you know, I should do this. Maybe I should do a, a double degree in business. I, I had a serious interest in becoming a, a history teacher, secondary ed, and ended up getting my master's in history, long, long story short. But uh, very similar. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was like, well, I own a business, so don't I need to get a business degree? But that was not really uh, sound logic. I did take a couple of business classes, but uh, it, and it and they helped me. But man, honestly, like what you were talking about, getting in that learning mode daily, going back to school taught me to 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 be a learner, you know. And I've leveraged that. I've, I feel like I've learned so much more since I got my master's degree. Since I've been mm -hmm. out, here, out here doing it than than before. Man, you you mentioned like selling some of your pieces and stuff, even when you were just switching over to journalism, like how does, how do you do that as an author? Like I've, I've talked with the Arkansas Encyclopedia and, and different historical societies. I kind of know that process, but like, how's that work for other publications? Um, you have to be tenacious. Um, you have to be determined that this is what you want to do. Uh, I'll tell you a, a neat little story. Um, when I first got started into this, and of course, like, again, I was 40 years old, so I already had a, and I, I was born with the gift of gab. I don't have very many gifts, but I can talk to anybody. That's, that's why I was good at sales. I can talk to anybody. It doesn't matter who it is, what, what station they are in life, you know, socioeconomic scale, wherever I can talk to you, meet you as a person there. And, and so, I, I, I used that strength. That was, that was the biggest, that was the only skill I had at the time. And I, I reached out to people. I would just email them or call them writers. I knew um, a couple of them in Arkansas. Uh, one of them in particular, this is really interesting. He, uh, he kind of responded to my email in a, he was a jerk. And uh, 
he, I, I, I was, you know, I was kind of doing this in the email. I'm not worthy. I'm just looking for a little advice. And he was kind of a jerk about it. But I knew that he, he had connections and I knew that he had some knowledge I needed to get. So this sounds very Machiavellian and, but he, I knew where he was going to be at a certain, at a certain event and I arranged to be there and I basically walked up to him and said, Hey, I'm Johnny saying, uh, I talked to you over email and you were a little rude to me, but you got some information I need to know. And not necessarily like that. But, uh, anyway, he was at first taken aback that I had the cojones to, you know, come up and, and do that. And then he, he talked to me and we're friends and he introduced me to his wife who was the president of a writer's association who was a gateway to all these editors and all these publications. And that, that was the key. I just, I just made put myself out there. Uh, even when I was really, really ignorant about how to do it and, and really my skills as a writer were, you know, I'm, I'm a much better writer now than I was then. Uh, but I put myself out there. I made connections. Uh, I asked for guidance. I asked for help. And uh, then I started sending query letters and, and submissions to magazines and got turned down a lot. Um, that, that's the key. Uh, you know, there's another, I don't know if it's a quote, but it's a something I've, I've turned around in my head um, that, you know, becoming a writer is really deciding that you want to be a writer and doing it. There's no great mystery behind it. It's, it's just like every other craft. Uh, you you got to put in the time. You can't go out, you know, doing all these fantastic riffs with words and stuff. You got to learn the basics first. Uh, and then you got to make connections. You got to find people that can help you uh, further your career, which is probably the most important thing. You know, on top of, you know, once you make these connections and, and you, you get these assignments, you got to deliver the product. You got to deliver a good product. Um, uh, but, but that's the key. Uh, hard, there's really no secret. It's hard work. Um, it's still hard work. It, it never gets easier. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the actual writing process. I'm just talking about, you know, the marketing, getting your, or the business side of it, getting yourself out there and, and selling. Uh, I think a lot of journalism students, a lot of want to be writers, that's probably where they're most lacking. Uh, they, they think it, that it's just going to magically happen. And I was, I was delusional like that for a while, but, but you have to be the one to make it happen. Um, like I said, and then deliver when you get the opportunity, you bring it. Uh, that's, that's it. And I have, I've had a lot of journalism students, a lot of other writers talk to me, ask me about it. Uh, there's no secret. It's just work. That, dude, that is the number one thing I tell people. Uh, I get this comment a lot, right? I got somebody who just was messaging me yesterday, a former student of mine here at the gym, right? And they're like, dude, how do you do it? I was like, well, I get up at four. And they're like, well, how do you do that? I was like, well, this process, like, don't think I'm doing a lot at four. It takes me from four to five just to get my life together. Like, <laughs> oh man, this is coffee. But I get that comment a lot. Like, Hey, how are you doing all this stuff? And it's just like, well, it's, I just, I'm on the long term. I'm on the long game. Yeah. I just, I'm playing long current games. Like at some point I made a shift to start being like, Oh, I'm just going to do as much I can every day towards these goals and reset reevaluate like what am i doing to achieve these goals am i am i acting accordingly but that's that's a that's a real interesting approach um 
are there are there any classes you took when you were going to college that you feel like are like were the most beneficial two classes i always wanted to take and i i had a a, a big interest i took uh uh dr Ritchie was a a writing professor there that i really enjoyed when i went right um he he taught creative writing i never got to take him for it and i also never took technical writing but those are two classes i always wanted to take um are there classes you took that were beneficial did you take those um i, I did have a class with dr Ritchie. um it was beneficial but i'm telling you the two most beneficial classes i had at arkansas tech university were philosophy and anthropology tell me about that dr bush class you took I didn't take Dr. Bush. Oh, uh, I, wow. I forgot. Mitchell. I forgot who I had. Um, the anthropology, I had Dr. Bound. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has a great Eric beard. Bound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had him, and, and we actually became friends. Actually, first day of class, and we're about the same age. I was sitting, and the person sitting next to me, I said, I'd like to have a beer with that dude. And <laughs> not too long, not much longer than we did have beers when we became friends. But, um, yeah, those were the two that were probably most important that the, to me because they, uh, I'm of the opinion you go to college to learn how to think critically. Uh, it's not a trade school. Uh, you go there to, to learn how to think. And those two classes taught me how to think more than any other classes I had. And, and the writing, you know, is a product of that. Uh, as far as the technical stuff on writing, Man, some of those professors are going to kill me, but I think you can get most of that. I don't know if you have to go to co class to get that. Uh, you know, you, you can learn that on your own, but learning the, the theories behind the way, behind the reason we are the way we are, uh, the reason we think the way we think, the reason we act the way we act, uh, all of those are integral to being a good writer. If you don't have, and you don't necessarily have to write about that, but if you don't have that baseline understanding of, for lack of a better way of saying it, the human condition, then I don't see how you can write about anything uh, because you can't see other perspectives and that's a requirement for being a writer. You have to be able to see other perspectives. You have to be able to understand to the best that you can other perspectives, even though you may not agree with, you know, certain conclusions drawn from those perspectives. Uh, and that's what those two classes taught me. They also taught me the philosophy class and it taught me how to see bull crap, uh, which is again, very important for being a writer. Uh, my, my, uh, my senses on that are, are pretty strong. I can, I can read through, you know, when somebody's feeding me a line, not necessarily that they're trying to lie, but the, the logical um, missteps they're taking in arriving at a conclusion. Did, you, take, did you ever take logic, the class? I did not. And I, I wish I would have. Uh, yeah, Good. because, it, and it's also, and I'm not just saying to use it as like a, something when you're dealing with other people, it's also very, well, the most beneficial for introspective use, uh, you know, to check yourself, you know, am I, how am I coming at this situation or this story or, or even this person, you know, am, am I looking at this with a clear lens or is it filtered, you know, through some other things that I'm not aware of? That, that's what those classes taught me. Um, if you want to be a good writer, technically, you need to read a lot. You need to read a lot of good writers. Um, if you want to go into newspaper stuff, of course, you learn AP style, you know, proper grammar and all that stuff. But actually, good writing is not all of that. Uh, 
good writing is that understanding of the human condition and uh, the ability to write about it <clears throat> in a very honest way. And I don't know that you can get that again. No, dis no disrespect to any of the journalism or writing instructors at Tech. And I think they would probably tell you similar, something similar. Uh, you get, you get that, uh, you, you have to have that. The technical stuff you can, you can get other ways. Yeah. Well, man, that's interesting that you say all this. Cause I mean, just looking around at your stuff, browsing around your site, reading a couple of your stories, hearing what Billy said about you. I was like, man, this guy's an empiricist. Right. I was like, he's, he's into looking at things and thinking about them, which is and two of the, yeah, Hey, I have that experience. That's where it came from. I went out and I gained that experience I had empirical data. I, I saw that and I derived this from that's, that's a real interesting approach, man. I talk about empiricism with my students at the university all the time that I have to explain to them. Here's what empiricism is. Cause yeah. I'll say, I'll say empirical belief and they're like, like colonialism <laughs> i'm like eh, no not really but uh yeah that's uh that's a very interesting approach and one that's uh age old you know yeah i actually have a, a, mi a minor in philosophy method. it's kind of the, the scientific method boiled down i mean natural observe. like what we call uh in history natural philosophy right yeah. like or, or or uh just like the natural just study of the natural world very scientific revolution yeah well uh yeah man that's that's awesome okay so you talked about when you started writing for about do you operate that publication now i do not uh it's owned by chris zimmerman who's our publisher and he was he did layout and design of the magazine when diane edwards was was the editor and the owner um when Diane passed away. I was actually still in college. I was, that was 2013. So I was a sophomore and I took over the editor job. I'm prepared, <laughs> but I was the best option. I think at the time, uh, Diane again had worked with me, you know, quite a bit, had mentored me and I'd actually taken on some other responsibilities to the magazine when she first fell ill. Uh, but, uh, when she passed away, I became editor, but uh, Chris bought the magazine and, uh, I am on paper. I'm contract. Uh, of course it's deeper than that. You know, I have a, I have an emotional investment in the magazine. Uh, it's a, it's a magazine about my place, my home, uh, besides all the, you know, the professional stuff tethered to it, how Diane helped me along and gave me opportunities. It, it's, uh, I've, I've never lived more than 30 minutes from where I was born, which is in Dardanelle, Arkansas. And I grew up in Adkins, lived in Dover for 20 years. I live in, in outside of Dardanelle now. I've uh, got ties to Newton County, uh, which is a little out of our range. But, but anyway, this is my home. Uh, I don't even really say that I'm from a town anymore. I'm just from the River Valley in Southern Ozarks. Um, uh, and so, no, I'm not, you know, tied to the magazine in any way on paper, but I am, I think, tied to the magazine, get really poetic, <laughs> you know, in some spiritual sense. Uh, again, it's, it's, we, we tell stories about people from, from my place and, 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 uh, so long answer to your question. No, I, I don't own it, but I, I, I'm a, I'm a big part of it. 
Uh, yeah, have, being editor. We have a three-headed. Well, it's, it's really there. Three people that run it are, are Chris Zimmerman, of course, publisher owner, and then I'm I'm the managing editor, and then Liz Chrisman is our photography editor, uh, and we're the we're the we're the the faces that are behind the main thrust of of, of about. Yeah. Okay. What like as editor with what you do i mean like what you have to i'm sure that's a time-consuming job right <laughs> like you have to what goes yeah, into that it's not it's not nearly as glamorous as most people think it is editing uh, video i know is a major time suck right like, even for this little podcast yeah the the administrative stuff is and i i don't like it uh but it's necessary uh you know if i had it my way i would write i would edit come up with creative ideas about, or not creative ideas necessarily, but weigh in on, you know, design layout or ideas for photography and all that. But a lot, like yesterday, most of my day, all of my day was administrative stuff. Uh, you got to track down, uh, you know, the subjects you want to write about, make sure they're open to an interview, to a story, and then you assign writers, uh, make sure the, that Liz and the writer are on the same page and on the same schedule. Um, you know, right now we're gearing up for a big issue in September, the Restable Sesquicentennial issue. And it's going to be probably the biggest, it will be the biggest issue we've ever done. Uh, and so I'm having to fill a lot of pages and reach out to a lot of people to get that lined out. Uh, that is actually most of what I do uh, for about. Um, written content, I occasionally, I write the editorial course and I write a Valley Vittles food column. And then I occasionally write a feature story um, and then editing. Um, it is, I've not ever put, Chris Zimmerman has asked me a couple times to, to try to figure out how much time I put into it. You can't quantify that. Um, I mean, there's rarely a day, there is never a day that I don't do something that has something to do with about. Some days it takes up a lot of my time uh, you know, but then that goes all the way until I get ready to go to bed. I mean, I'm always, always thinking about stuff. I can't just turn it off. Yeah. That's, I, I suffer from that same disease, man. <laughs> you yeah. Know? It's one of the, you know, one of the, my life and, and my work, my, my personal life and my professional life are really closely intertwined and that's both good and bad, you know, and in some aspects it's really good because, I don't know. It feels like that's what I feels like that's the way it should be and to a degree. But on the other side, I, I can't ever, I don't ever get a break. I mean, and I'm, you know, people assume I work from home. I've worked from home the entire time I've edited about. And of course I, you know, freelance for other publications. Um, and people assume you work at home, you know, your own boss, you, you do what you want, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm like you, I'm usually up at four 30, four 30 or five. I don't even need an alarm clock. My brain's going. Uh, and it never, never stops. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I've built this life and I'm, you know, of all the other options out there, this is the one I like the best. The, uh, the, the real question is how do you get your wife to understand? <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Like Corey's super supportive, but man, it is like, I'm about to go on vacation yeah. uh, tomorrow. We have our 10 year anniversary. Um, Congratulations. And thank you. Uh, and it's also Corey's birthday. So, um, I'm like, okay, I really need to not take any work with me. So like, man, I've been doing all this extra, but it's still, it's going to be extremely hard for me to, 
turn it off when yeah. I when I get there. Even though, like, man, it's gonna be relaxation city. It's gonna be a great time. We're looking forward to it. But man, it's so hard. Like that's why I joked about being a disease. To like, when you have that like creative mindset, it's just like, man, I can't stop thinking about ancient Egypt or no arm bars or whatever it is i'm thinking about yeah that fire keeps going um my christine is you know we, we've been married 26 years wow i, uh, it's been a while. I can't remember now it was 26 27 um 27 yes yeah, 27 anyway mm. um but she's we've we've kind of well for the most of our married life we've both been self-employed and so that kind of goes along with it. I mean, and it's just understood, you know, our vacations are mostly short and, you know, we both know that they're not going to be without some peak at the emails or some, uh, you know, correspondence with, with someone on the other end. Uh, that's just a given. And, and again, it's, it's not, in some ways, I there are some days, yeah, I want to just unplug everything and say, man, I don't want to talk to nobody or anything that has to do with anything on my job in for like a week. But even when we're, we're off grid, barely, for a couple of days, we go camping or, or something like that. Usually the second day, I'm, I'm kind of like, man, I kind of want to know what's going on here. Or, you know, I'm, I'm itching to do this. or So, again, it's good and bad. I, I, Sometimes I hate it. Sometimes I love it. I guess you can say that about a lot of stuff. Uh, Christine's very understanding on it. Um, she's, when I had this crazy idea to do this and go back to school, she was 100% behind me. Uh, Did she go back to school as well? Yeah, she went back to school. After I got started, uh, I guess it's right after, she, yeah, we went, we went simultaneously for a while. I think for maybe one year, maybe two. Yeah, we were, I was going back and, you know, kind of had an idea of which direction I was going and, and she didn't know. And, and we were talking about it and I said, you just need to go back to school. Uh, actually, she had never gone before. This was her, she just started fresh and, and jumped into it and she was 42 or 43. Wow. Graduated with honors. Um, uh, got a degree in sociology. Man, she's got two or three degrees. Sociology. I've loved her comment. She shared this a little. I'm friends with her on Facebook. She comes in. Oh, okay. But um, I've loved hearing her share about going back. And I think that it's important uh, to get that dialogue out because, man, some people like myself, I just was not ready to go the first time around. Mm. When I did become ready, it was a massively beneficial process for me. Yeah. And like, it, what I'd like about what she said is like, what it did for me like it raised my empathy level i became way more open-minded uh and viewing more groups of people more empathetically i mean it was it was a great thing right mm -hmm. and she's kind of like different posts i've made commented on that and talked about things that she had been exposed to but uh i, I always love hearing those stories when people I, I i have a lot of students that are over 40 at the community college you know, like we have such a diverse, it's a lot of parents. I even have a lot of high school students, man. Like last December, we had seven high school students get an associate's degree. Wow. Like I couldn't even get into college algebra when I was in high school, you know? 
Oh no, man. It it um yeah, the college experience, I'm yeah, I was exactly like you. I didn't I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do when I got out of high school. Um and I mainly went because that's what my parents wanted me to, you know, I I'd earned a scholarship and it, it was I felt obligated to go to, to school. Uh, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I didn't care. Um, but going back at age 40, of course, with all that, you know, life experience behind me, actually college made, even with all that life experience behind me, college made my world bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, you know, every, my scope just got way wider. Um, um, and that's, you know, kind of going back to what I mentioned before, that's, that's what I believe college is supposed to do. It's not supposed to teach you how to be a this or that. Of course, you need to pick up some, you know, some basic skills maybe in this particular profession, but, but that's not really what it's designed to do. It's designed to, to make you think. Um, that's what it did. And I would not trade that. You know, part of me wishes I'd done it sooner, of course. Everybody probably thinks that. But at the same time, it happened when it needed to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, so... Yeah, it was a great experience. It was a great experience for Christine. I, I believe so. I don't want to speak for her, but any time we talk about it, she said that was a bit, one of the best decisions she's ever made. Yeah, well, like I said, just picking up with her comments on social media, like I would, I would just say that's true because I was thinking about it when you were talking about it. That's, uh, and it's even awesome that both of you guys have that story, right? I feel yeah. like I've, you know, I, I see people like, ah, oh, well, I'm married, I can't go to school, or I get married and I have kids, or I have kids, or, or, you know, it's like, man, I have so many parents that are students and see so many people just doing it, making it happen. It is, it is possible. Yeah, it's, it's like any, man, I mean, you know, there are some, I understand that not everyone comes from a place that I came from and has opportunities that I have, but for the most part, think if you want to do something you just need to decide in your head you want to do it um you know that's kind of that's kind of how i've lived my life and i don't know i know i haven't made the best decision all the time but um you know christine and i were were talking about we were going down memory lane and talking about stuff and you know when i when i owned the hog farm i was 27 i was 27 i had zero money uh i don't know how we even got it got a loan but i decided i wanted to farm and I figured out a way to do it um and again I, I'm, I'm privileged in lots of ways and i understand that uh but i, I think that a lot of mm, i don't want to get into the whole life coach thing but i think a lot of what holds people back is they don't make up their mind that they want to do something set a goal and they just go do it you know and, and yes you may fail i failed a lot i think anyone that's done anything has failed a lot uh, but, but you're never going to, to reach something that you want. You're never going to reach, uh, whatever that may be. And unless you decide to act on it, um, you know, lots of times my problem now is biting off more than I can chew. Uh, but I think that's, again, part of it. You can extend yourself, push yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, man, one thing I wanted to chat with you about is I was browsing around your blogs and just some writings you'd done on your website. And there's one that I remember reading uh, that I'd seen shared a few times. And I think it's a, it, it kind of ties into a lot of things that you're interested in, but it's a story you wrote about this, this area basically where people bow hunt for gar a lot, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, man. But that is, 
that's such an interesting take you took on it right because con like conservation efforts hunting feeding your family with food like i'm all about that right and i grew up hunting with my dad i like I don't really hunt so much anymore personally, uh, but I'm not against it either. Right. So, but man, you just made some really good points about like, okay, this is not that right. These, what these people are doing with this or, or like how, like I remember growing up going fishing with catch gars and they would like people that we'd be with, even my dad would like break their top bill off and yeah, throw, my dad throw did that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, so for people that haven't read that, would you kind of tell them what we're talking about if they're listening? Well, um, where to start? Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with bow fishing, you know, and it doesn't have to be necessarily bow fishing. It's it's a there there are certain animals, wild animals specifically, that have been labeled or there have been certain labels placed on wild animals based on their benefit to people. Uh, you know, gar are labeled a very negative sounding rough fish for most people. And there's a whole lot of other fish in that category. Carp. And, uh, yeah, carp. Uh, carp are kind of a different story because they're invasives too. But, but buffalo, uh, gar, granel, bowfin, we call them granel. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. There's a whole lot of them. But basically, they're given that label because they're not beneficial in some way. They're not, they're not highly sought after to eat. They're not, they don't have any commercial value. They don't have any utilitarian value. And the attitude toward those animals, you know, another one would be, you know, if you want to talk about terrestrial animals, coyotes. Coyotes are another one. Yeah. Uh, lots of other predators. Uh, if they don't have utilitarian value, then they're, they're giving these labels as vermin or it's a rough fish or, or a pest or whatever. And um, when you, when you express your, you know, when you label these animals like that, basically what you're doing is you're trying <laughs> not sound too harsh here, but you, you don't have an understanding of how ecosystems work. Uh, you, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a dominionistic mindset that causes these, that causes people to label animals like this. You know, if, they, if you can't extract any value out of them, uh, they don't have any worth. Uh, gar, you know, they, they have long been despised. Like you said, your dad did, mine did too. Uh, we catch them when we were catfishing and dad killed them. Uh, and it was actually the Arkansas Game Fish Commission. They used to promote that. Uh, there was a belief, I don't know how they arrived at it, uh, that gar decimated game fish populations. They ate bass and crappie and bream and all this other stuff. Uh, come to find out that's really not true. They don't, they don't have much to do with those populations at all. Um, but what it led to was large scale that, you know, killing, uh, killing gar indiscriminately. And out of that kind of came the, the attitude that we could treat all rough fish like this. Uh, and bow, bow fishermen, uh, people that shoot fish with bows, they target those rough fish. They're, yeah. they're allowed to by the Arkansas Game Fish Commission. Um, and not all of them, but the majority, and when I did it, we'd, we'd shoot fish, we'd just throw them on the bank or take them home and throw them in the garden, you know, which was a huge waste of resource and also just incredibly disrespectful. Uh, disrespectful not only to the individual fish, but also to this, this big system that the fish is part of. And 
um, what I came to realize, you know, slowly, uh, growing up in this in this culture that usually views animals in a very utilitarian way, you know, how can I use them? They don't really have benefit unless I can use them. Uh, was that the gar has an intrinsic value. Uh, it has value that I don't understand. Uh, it also has value that I can't understand if I'm willing to learn about the ecology and the biology of the fish. Uh, the guy that kind of led me down that road to that, it was a writer named Aldo Leopold. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Yeah, whole, yeah. Billy Reader told me to ask you about him. Ironically, yeah, yeah. he's like my—he's the reason I grow a beard in the winter. Uh, but hey, uh, hey, hey, uh, Johnny, hold on two seconds. I got somebody uh, actually knocking on my door. I don't know if they're, okay. I'm at my gym. I'll be right back. Okay. This is—I'm in my new studio, and I don't have my door tinted yet. So I bet they're asking about the gym. I'll be right back. No worries. Sorry, man. I've got, uh, I have my own entrance and exit. It's the only door in and out of here, but, uh, my tent guy, I haven't got with him to, I need it blacked out. Uh, so people yeah. can't even see me in here, but sorry about that. Aldo, yeah. uh, Aldo, Le uh, Leopard, Leopold, Leopold, Aldo Leopold. Um, he wrote uh, a book called the sand County Almanac and Aldo Leopold is the father of modern wildlife management. Uh, and he was, um, he was a scientist and he was also a, just a hell of a writer, um, incredible writer, who, who somehow made that distinction between, um, oh man, it's hard to talk about this that going into all these different, other different angles, but he, 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 he made that distinction between, you know, scientific knowledge and something that is more, Again, spiritual is the best way I can say it. He made that distinction really hazy in a lot of his writings. It was hard to tell where one ended and one began. Um, and and his, the basis of, of all of that was his, his thoughts called, it's called the land ethic. And, and uh, what the land ethic is, is, is that says is that we need to treat uh, the land ecosystems as a community and to understand that each piece is, interdependent on another piece and uh, even if you don't know exactly how that you know dynamic works there's there are these connections uh, and these these connections have been you know power and life on this planet for how long is life been on this planet how many billions of billions of years uh, that's what that's what's empowering this life and so when you go to tinkering with stuff, you know, because again, you put labels on it, of, this has value and this does not, or, uh, you know, change, you alter the landscape in, in various ways, not, not just, you know, 
physically out there moving land or changing waterways, but taking creatures out of it. So you're altering these ecosystems and sometimes in irreparable ways, you know, or ways that I won't say irreparable because evolution, you know, they all, the niches are always filled, but um, it changes it for us. Ultimately, it changes us for us humans and that, our experience with it. And so a lot of that thinking, you know, was, was what drove that GAR essay. Um, there was one scene in particular uh, Leopold talked about, he used to be about killing wolves. He, he thought wolves should die because more wolves meant more deer. But then he understood that, or less wolves meant more deer. But then he learned that uh, more deer means that they browse down the vegetation on the mountain. And when they browse down the vegetation on the mountain, that disrupts birds, migrating birds that nest there. It, that, that it disrupts insect populations. It can have a whole uh, cascade of other environmental issues because there are too many deer. And when he realized that, uh, he realized that after he, he wrote about it, he, he killed a wolf and he walked up to it and he said, it's a, again, not verbatim, but he talked about how the green fire in its eyes was dying. And he realized that the only person that could, that, or the only entity that could decide whether a wolf should die or not is the mountain. And um, that was the same thoughts I had actually about the gar when I started thinking about it. You know, uh, these gar play really uh, integral roles in these ecosystems. They do control some fish. Usually it's bait fish like shad, stuff like that. Um, and they're, they're ancient. Uh, gar evolved with dinosaurs. They haven't changed much. They're basically the same creature they were when T-Rexes were walking. Um, seems pretty haughty and arrogant of me to, to assume, you know, just for my amusement, that it's okay to go out and stink it, stick an arrow in one of these things that may be 30 years old and then just throw it in the garden. Um, so, and again, I arrived at a lot of this, you know, through reading stuff like Leopold and, and Edward Abbey and Paul Shepard and uh, David Peterson, a bunch of these uh, outdoor, you know, they weren't just hunters and anglers, they were thinkers. Uh, and, uh, that that's really what's powered the, the gar story and, and several others i've read yeah fascinating i'll share that when i uh post this uh podcast okay. i'll share the link that way people can can go read it because man it was it was great and i couldn't i something i thought about a couple of times i'd seen it shared a couple of times and i honestly i didn't even remember it was your article until i was on your site browsing around when you sent me your website right and i was like all right, great. That'll give us some something to talk about because that was a great that was a great ride. Yeah, it made it made the rounds, and that was a that was an article that I wrote, and it actually, <laughs> I think I sat on it for two years wow. before I published it uh, because I I sent it off. It was one of the it was the it still may be I think the, I usually hate everything I write, but I like that one, um, and I'd send it off to some mentors of mine, writers that I really respect when I wrote it, and asking their opinions and they all loved it. And, and one of them said, one of them told me, he said, you need to sit on it for a little bit and make sure you know it's still good a few months from now. And so that's what I did. And a few months turned into two years and I finally revisited it and I said, yeah, it's ready now. Uh, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, but, but yeah, that's, if I were going to boil down my thoughts on everything, I think you could find it in that article. Uh, yeah. yeah. Man, how do you overcome what you just said like I, i've experienced that a little bit with like uh putting out videos uh this and that i've got like 800 videos on youtube you know 
So between my podcast and the gym, but I remember when I was, you know, getting ready to start putting myself out there, I like, I don't really think about it as much anymore, but because I, I just frequently do it. Right. But I did like, it's like, okay, is this, is this video crap? Like, am I putting out, am I putting out a crap video right now? And heavily, sometimes I did, but like you were saying like, oh man, I, I don't really like my stuff. Like, why would you say that? And how do you overcome it? Like, is it like, you don't like, I, my thing is like, all right, people are going to talk shit in the comments. You know? Yeah. I, I haven't overcome it. Um, it's imposter syndrome. And I, I don't feel like I, <clears throat> I feel like the next thing I write, people are going to say, aha, we knew he was an idiot. He's been an idiot all along, and this is proof he's an idiot. Um, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he shouldn't be a writer. You know, I've been fooling everybody. And it's pretty common. Uh, actually, every writer that I know personally that I really respect, they, some writers that I think of is like, I'm thinking of two right now that are man, top of the game. Um, and they deal with it constantly. Um, one of them actually told me that that is, that means you're doing things right. You've always got to check on yourself. Um, so it's not so much overcoming it as it is kind of, powering through it the obstacle the, the what was it, the obstacle becomes the way uh kind of a thing and so you know you you just got to keep pumping it out there and you know some stuff you do is going to be bad I, I think you have to take that realize that um mine i'm i'm pretty obsessive probably a little neurotic and so my stuff, I'm I'm just extremely critical of my own work. Um, and again, though, it's not just me. Other writers I talk to, other photographers, artists, um, they feel the same way. Um, so getting over it, I don't think there's a way to do that. Maybe it's a good uh, thing. Yeah, I think it's. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think you learn to deal with it. It's like so many other you know issues I've got. Uh, my, my personality and emotional stuff, man, I, I learned to deal with it. I, I learned, I try to find ways to channel these, you know, what could be deficiencies in some sense into uh, working for me. Um, and and I, I think I've done that. But yeah, I hate, most of the time I can't read anything I've written. Once I write it and it's published, I don't want to read it again. There are a handful, uh, the Gar Hole and maybe a couple, th two or three others but I keep in a folder that when I need to pump myself up and <laughs> say, like, you know, I got a project and they're like, man, you can do this. Cause sometimes you're worried, man, is that well going to go dry? I mean, whew, you know, am I, I going to be able to find these words? And so I'll go back and read these. Like, you've done it before, you've done it before, you can do it again. You know, come on, Johnny, you can do it. Uh, there's a handful that I do that with, but for the most part, I, I don't want to read it after it's, after it's published. Um, that's, that's interesting too. Like, you know, I, and I picked up on like what you're talking about that I, like I said, I kind of have suffered from it too. And you know, when those comments do come, I, I read them and I'm like, well, you know, you had a point there. Maybe yeah. I should, maybe I should make a positive change, but well, uh, go ahead. What I was, was going to say, when it comes to comments, this is, this is my advice on that. <clears throat> it's going to sound kind of harsh too, but I'm getting older and I'm turning into a curmudgeon. So I don't really care what most other people think. 
there are a handful. Um, there's more than a handful. There are people that I do greatly value their opinion. And if, if I'm getting thumbs up from them, then I'm doing things right. Uh, you know, of course you want, you know, as a writer, I want my work to influence the general public. I want to inform them and I want to influence them. Uh, but I also realize that there's going to be some that I'm never going to do that to. And I also realize there's going to be some that's going to uh, really react negatively to what I put out there. I, I, I'm to the point now that used to bother me, uh, but my skin has gotten quite a bit thicker and I don't really care. There, again, there, there are some people that I do care. Uh, and if they were to approach me with criticism, you know, and say, Hey man, you missed the mark here big time. I would, I sure did, or I would be for sure be back there examining what I did, you know, to see where I missed it and ask them to explain it to me. But, you know, generally speaking, man, that, that just doesn't bother me anymore. I, I don't really care. Uh, I got, Good. I got more important things. I got the next piece I got to worry about, uh, you know, so that, that would be my advice on that and your, your comments. Uh, yeah. You're gonna, you're just gonna have negative people, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it doesn't matter how well you craft your message. There's gonna be somebody that's gonna, almost invariably, there's gonna be somebody that's that's gonna find something that, you know. Man, I wrote a shoe review the other day, and somebody found some. He nitpicked it twice. I mean, it was ridiculous, you know. And it was a shoe review, uh, but uh, for wading shoes, uh, I write for a couple of fly fishing magazines, and I, I do reviews every now and then. Your review, but anyway. That's just part of it. When you put content out there, you know, everybody's got a voice now. Everybody thinks they, their voice is relevant and they're going to talk about it. So, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, one more question about your writing, uh, before I got a couple questions about just the nonprofits that you serve on the, mm -hmm. that you mentioned, but do you have a strategy like, Every morning, Johnny wakes up, he, he drinks a coffee, and he does his writing for projects from 5.30 to 7, and he does a 1,000 words no matter what. Like, do you have any sort of process, or is it just free-flowing? You just uh, do it every day. It's pretty free-flowing, and that's, that's probably not good. Uh, but I've tried to work on a tight schedule and say I'm going to sit down and write at this time. I think some writer, I can't remember if it was Stephen King or – Ernst like somebody said you can't wait on inspiration you got to go out and get it with club um so i've tried that i've tried to sit down and force myself and it, it depends uh, you know if i have to transcribe in an interview uh, then i will get started on that usually in the mornings after i get up get up i have and i'm like like you said, i get up early have coffee usually go for a walk like this morning we got blackberries out here on the dirt road and i went out to pick some blackberries uh, Try to do something outside in the early mornings when, when the weather permits. Uh, come back in, usually check my emails, you know, any messages I need to respond to. And then if I got a, a transcribed interview, then I'll go ahead and do that in the mornings. Um, and usually on a story that involves interviews, those interviews are the inspiration for the story. I can, I can build an entire narrative based on those interviews. That's my scaffolding. Um, and other stories, essays, more the more creative work i'm horrible at that in the morning uh, my best creative work usually happens and i hate this because i'm an early bird but it usually happens late at night in the late afternoon in the evening uh, i don't like it because i want to start winding down there and getting ready for bed i go to bed early 
but some very often I'll get in a groove at 830 at night and I got to ride it out until it's done. Um, so probably the better essays, the more creative work done on any, on any other stories I've done pieces, they generally happen in the afternoon or evening. Um, I don't, I try to, I do try to set aside time. I try to block out time in the afternoon. Again, not necessarily to say I'm going to write X amount of words, but I'm going to be on this project. And that may result in 300 words. It may result in a thousand words. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, I will say the hardest part of writing though is getting those first words down. That's one reason I do like doing interviews. I don't like transcribing, but when I get those interviews transcribed, I already have the words down. I can build on it. But when you're starting from scratch, the, the hardest part is getting those words down. I will say that to, if, you're, if you're wanting to be a writer or you're young writers, you got to get the words down. You got to get those first words down. Uh, even if it is like, you know, breaking water uphill, you've got to get the words out and then you can build on them. You got something to work with. Uh, inevitably, I will, you know, struggle. I'll block off some time and, you know, turn off my phone, uh, block off some time, get the words down. And I'll look at them like, man, every one of them suck. Uh, I'll come back the next day and I'll look at them it's like, they all suck, but there's a thread here I can follow. And I'll take this little bit of good and build on it. And then it usually takes off then. It's usually, it's like priming a pump. Uh, once you get those words down, you go back again, you find something to go off of and you get the, get it primed and that's when the flow starts. And I don't know how to describe the flow. I've heard other people try to talk about it. Uh, when you get in that zone though, I don't know, I played basketball, I never was very good at it, but it, I was a very streaky shooter. But I knew it, there were times that I would get in this spot where it didn't matter where I was on the court, you tell me the ball, I'm gonna hit it. And it's very, the analogy is very similar to the riding. We're a shooter in archery, I shoot archery, you shoot tournaments. And, and there were times that the bullseye looked big as a freaking, you know, uh, big old, uh, well, big as basketball. <laughs> and I could hit it with my eyes closed. And that's how it feels when you get in the zone with the riding. Uh, Hard to get there sometimes, but the words flow. Um, but generally, again, I don't have a hard and fast schedule because I don't know what the day's gonna throw at me. I don't know what emails we're gonna require. I don't know how much work I'm gonna have to do to get this subject ready for this story and get this writer hooked up with this this person. I, I don't know, you know, how long an interview is gonna take. I, I don't. I have all these all these variables that I don't know, so I, it's hard for me to set a schedule. But if, uh, on good days. I will block out time in the afternoon and say, all I'm doing is writing, or all I'm gonna do is, is work on this project. And if, if a lot of words get down, great. If a few words get down, that's okay too. You ever set time aside that's like, yeah, well, you know, Johnny's been working a lot this week. He's gonna chill for two hours and not do anything at all. Or do you have like uh, mechanisms absolutely. for that? I absolutely do. I, the, again, though, a lot of my personal and, you know, a lot of my passions are so tied to what I do. Um, but I, I actually will, um, I'll write, I have a to-do list I write out every week. And that makes me feel like I'm doing something even when I think I'm not getting anything accomplished. So I can look and say, yep, you did this, this, and this. Um, I will actually write in there time, you know, I'm gonna go to the creek and I'm gonna fish. This morning is, I will block that out. I'll, I'm gonna go fish for three hours this morning. Uh, during deer season, we live on venison. And so 
I bow hunt and uh, when I look ahead the weather and I see it's going to be really, really good day to be in tree stand, I block it out on my calendar. Uh, and I'm, I used to feel really self-conscious about that and feel guilty actually sometimes, but I don't anymore. It's really important. It's, it's not only important for me professionally, because there actually a lot of great ideas come, you know, when you're out, that's usually when inspiration hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be out in the middle, you know, knee deep in the creek and all these great words are coming to me then. Of course, I got nothing to write them down on then, but, but that's when ideas come to you. Uh, so it's, it's important for that, but it's also important, um, and just for me, you know, again, I'm, it took me, 49 years old, it took me a long time to realize that. I'd always feel a tinge of guilt when I would go off and do these things. But now these are the important things, you know, this and time with your family. And, and I, I got two grandkids and one on the way, uh, you know, these are things you must make time for. Uh, and that includes for me, time in the woods, time in the creek, uh, time, yeah, like you said, just doing nothing. There are times I'll just go sit out under this big cherry tree in the yard and not do anything. Just decompress um so yeah i make time for that those are the things that definitely get on my schedule and i I think they're important and again speaking from someone who's in a very privileged position uh i've I've not always been able to do that uh and i realize that a lot of people can't do that uh but that was actually part of me building this life is that i wanted that kind of control uh I'm a huge control freak, actually. That's that's the deal. I don't want anybody else telling me what to do or how to do it or when to do it. I don't mind working hard, but I want to do it on my own terms. Yeah. My uh, my wife the other day, just like, in, I mean, she's, she's halfway joking. She's like, you have a serious problem with authority. I was like, you say this like it's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I do. I had a friend I was framing houses with uh, when I first started back to school. When I was 40 years old, we were, we were building houses, and I just framed them. And man, he's an excellent carpenter and can build a house from ground up. I had no beans about it. We were out there one day uh, putting metal roof on a house and it was like 110 degrees. And I said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and he turned around and looked at me and he said, yeah, but you're getting paid for it. And I said, yeah, but it's stupid. And a little later on, it was required for a long time. He said, you just don't make a very good hand, do you? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to work for anybody. I said, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity, but I love you, but no, I don't make a good hand. And no, I don't want to be here working for you right now. And he said, well, you told me, so that's fine. Let's just get her done. So we got it done. But, but yeah, I, I don't like authority. I don't like somebody telling me what to do. Uh, I, I don't react well to that. I mean, I'm better at it now. I let stuff roll off. But when I used to really bristle up at that. <laughs> yeah, it, man, it's, you know, like working at the college, I've experienced that a little bit, but also, too, like uh, I wouldn't say that where I'm at's an example, but I do hear and read about these incredible teams of people that have this awesome culture where it's like, hey, your boss doesn't seem so much like a boss. I just haven't personally experienced that. No, I haven't either. And again, though, most of my life, man, again, from the time that Christine and I have been married, I've almost always worked for myself. I've found some way to do it. Um, just something that it was having control of my time I think was something that was probably probably more important than even having someone just tell me what to do because having control over my time was very important to me yeah uh, and again that you know a lot of times that meant long hours uh it wasn't the work it wasn't 
it wasn't that it was that that some sense of uh, being in charge of yourself i guess uh, yeah that's that's just as appealing that's that's just as appealing just as an as an appealing aspect of this job i do now as anything else uh, it's you know why i'm not actively and knock on wood i've been fortunate and i have to i'm not actively looking for you know any kind of uh, position within a publication or any kind of media group you know uh, an actual job i want to try to stay freelance uh and and try to find you know but the downside of that is you don't know what your income is going to be from month to month but the plus side again is that i, I can i have control of my time so yeah. that's trade off yeah right on man that's uh, that's awesome super interesting approaches and background um to the white river waterkeeper right you oh. told me briefly about that I, I looked into it a little bit just just a google search i mean yeah how did you uh, get involved with that and what what are you doing with that organization? Uh, i was invited to be a board member just this year um probably based um i know the the waterkeeper which is the the executive director of the organization is jesse jean green and uh i've known jesse for a while um, she's, I've interviewed her for some stories. I did a story about the, the hog farm up on tributary of the Buffalo river, um, and interviewed Jesse for that. And people in the conservation circles, environmental circles knew me, uh, and I was invited to join that board and they are, their goal is to, their focus is the white river watershed, which is North of the river Valley. Actually, it's on the other side of the of the divide of the Boston mountains. And it's everything that flows, Buffalo River, Richland Creek, uh, Creek Creek, all kinds of other little creeks up there all run into the White River. So it's all that watershed. And um, they, <clears throat> we kind of keep our eyes on Arkansas Depar Department of Environmental Quality, make sure regulations are where they need to be. Uh, Jesse, our executive director used to work for uh, Arkansas De Department of Environmental Quality. So she knows the ins and outs. Uh, we keep up on policy decisions at the, at that agency. Um, that's that's mostly what we do. Uh, try to inform the public of what's going on with the waterways. Um, you know, the Buffalo is the iconic Ozark Mountain Stream and our and kind of iconic Arkansas Stream. Um, and so that's that river is um, almost like a you know if. if we caught, we bring attention to all waterways in Arkansas, but the Buffalo is like our symbol of that, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but uh, that's what we do. Mostly what I do, I'm a new board member. I'm following everyone else's lead right now. Um, but it's, it's a, it's an organization that is their, their purpose is to make sure that we have swimmable, fishable, drinkable water uh, for everyone to have to enjoy. Uh, that that's the goal, which really seems like something silly that we have to fight for, but that's where we are. Um, yeah. I talked to my friend who's a game warden about this, but what are your thoughts on them? And not to like probe you into some controversial, but what are your thoughts uh, on them? Controversy, so. All right. <laughs> he told me the number of people he saw down there when they made the decision to close the Buffalo river due to the pandemic it kind of made sense to me. He said at one point there were like 400 people in really close proximity to people. And I was like, damn. Right. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Like everybody's like, they're closing outside. Oh my God. You know? 
Um, I they're not closing outside. They're closing a the state park, and there are tons of places to go in Arkansas besides the state parks. Those are the most easily accessible, and I get that. And and I understand that not everyone again comes from my position. That I know where a lot of swimming holes are and trails and places that nobody goes, and that's where I go. And I don't want to tell anybody else about it because I don't want anybody else there. Um, so they're not closing that. They're closing the parks. They're not closing the outside. They're closing the parks, and I get it. Um, you know, personally, this is going to be really controversial, probably more controversial than you thought any of this was going to be. I think they ought to even limit um, access to the parks even more than they do during times like this. I thought of, about that. I mean, they're busy all the time. Yeah, it, it, it ruins the experience. And, you know, and I don't, I'm not sure how to address that. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not calling for a blanket, you know, we can only allow half the people we've been allowing. I'm saying that we need to, you know, we're loving a lot of these places to death. Um, you know, and here you're going to get me started on GPS coordinates and all kinds of other stuff, Instagram and all this other junk, you know, telling people where all these places are. And, and that's, again, I understand that everyone wants to experience the beauty, but when you start bringing all these hordes of people out there, it ruins the beauty. It ruins the experience. So that's one of the challenges going forward, I think, you know, with not just, it's been, it's been highlighted during the pandemic because people are seeking, you know, other outlets. They can't go to movies. They can't do this, can't do that. We can still go outside. So let's go to parks. But it, it highlights some, some things that, that need to be addressed. You know, as the population grows, uh, we have finite right now, you know, we only have so many parks. We only have so many access areas. Is it better to build more parks and create more access areas? Eh, well, then you start ruining some of these places that are, you know, they're not pristine, of course, but they're, they're much wilder and, and more enjoyable for people like me. Um, you know, the easier, the more roads and the easier access, those are things that I'm, I'm not a fan of, but I'm willing to go the extra mile. I'm willing to walk. I'm willing to do all those other things to enjoy these other areas that are closer to being unspoiled. So it opens up a big old, you know, again, that's something we're going to have to think about in, environmentally uh, as we go forward. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if there's a clear cut answer on that. No, nah, that, well, that it brings up a lot of interesting points to think about is like, well, was there, was there a problem we're just seeing highlighted because of the pandemic? I'm, I'm with you on that a hundred percent. Cause I mean, I've, I've floated the Buffalo several times. It's great. I've done the wilderness portion that, cross i had to cross the white river when i got there you know so um and i love it man and i, I loved being on the wilderness portion and not seeing a soul for three days that was great that was great yeah that's what again i seek those places out the places i fish and where we camp and where i go to hunt and hike i, I don't broadcast it and i i stay away from I, we haven't been in the buffalo in a while because it's so crowded um you know, I find little creeks off the beaten path. Yeah. Some of them, some of them barely have names or names that not anybody recognizes. Uh, those are where I'm going. And so, again, I understand that most people, I'm very privileged. My dad, my dad's from Newton County. My mom grew up in Hector. And, you know, 
I, these were my birth, not my birth rights, but I was, I, knew, I had this knowledge from my earliest memories of where these places were and how to get to them. And uh, not everyone was, you know, was given that. Um, so I understand I, going forward again, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's something that we're going to have to talk about. Um, yeah. Again, then, that, that's a good segue into the other nonprofit I'm in. You're going to talk about you know, conservation. Yeah, conservation hawks. Um, these are other issues. I mean, it's pretty clear cut what we need to do in this situation. Uh, it's just trying to battle the political winds along the other direction. Um, yeah, conservation hawks is a group founded by Todd Tanner. Uh, it's based roughly in Montana. That's where Todd lives. Um, I think I'm the southernmost board member. Um, <clears throat> and we um, are a group that is, we're trying to, to bring um, not only, it seems like we should be past the point of explaining climate change, <clears throat> excuse me, climate change and, and the, the dangers to people, but we're still trying to do that with hunters and anglers and also trying to um, get them to be politically active in this debate, or it's not a debate, into this discussion about what we need to be doing. Um, you know, and, and hunters and anglers uh, actually should, Maybe besides the only people, other people I could think of that might be more affected would be people that their livelihoods are affected, like agriculture and, and you know, uh, seafood and stuff like that. But hunters and anglers as a group are, are pretty closely intertwined with the land uh, and are usually the first people that notice changes, um, notice things shifting. Um, <clears throat> I've noticed it here, you know, here in Arkansas. And, and we haven't been nearly as affected as, as other areas of the nation. Uh, but our goal as an organization is to create awareness. And, and again, hopefully we're, what we want to do is, is uh, bring hunters and anglers into this discussion uh, and have them, you know, pretty bluntly, have them uh, get on their politicians to get something done about it. Uh, you know, I'm not one to argue with the science on here. I'm not a scientist and I'm not going to argue with the scientists. Uh, this, this is what's going on. Uh, this is why it's going on. Our, our, our task is how can we mitigate this? You know, mm -hmm. how, can we, how can we alter this a little bit so the future is not quite so bleak? Um, so, you know, beyond even the existential threat or, or before the existential threat, how do we mitigate this so that my grandkids can go to the creek and catch smallmouth bass? And how do we mitigate this so that, you know, they can sit out on a summer evening and listen to the cicadas and the whippoorwills uh, because all of these things are being affected uh, by climate change. Um, you know, there's, there's even duck hunting in Arkansas is being affected by climate change. Uh, I'm not a duck hunter, but, but there's, there's an effect. Uh, all of these, again, the kind of the heart and soul of, of, hunting and angling uh, is, is the land and the waters and they're all being affected. Uh, so again, that, that's our goal. We're seeing some progress, I think. Um, we saw some progress last year when we all got smacked in the mouth when the Arkansas River flooded out, of its, flooded out of its banks and people were starting to know, hey, something's changing here, you know, in a historic flood. Uh, we, we saw some shifts there um, and we see a few here and there but it's a, it's, it still seems like an uphill battle. 
Yeah, like most things seem to be right now, honestly. Uh, like every yeah. every little thing is a politicized issue right now. Yeah, I'm still I'm still puzzled as to how science can become so politicized, but I guess it always has been. Uh, seems like it's more so now, but but yeah, everything seems to be like that. Uh, uh. Well, man, I, I this has been a super interesting talk, Johnny. I really uh, you're you're into a lot of awesome stuff, and you're passionate about it, and thoughtful and insightful too like i like that you took a minute to like that i a really good friend of mine and a, a mentor like i'll ask him complicated shit all the time and he always like pauses before he'll or not always but he'd be like yeah i'm gonna need to think this out for yeah okay and then he and, and it's like it leaves you on a cliffhanger but man it's you know so many times i i I'm take, taking note of that and tried to use that. Like uh, one of my speech teachers called it working the pause. It gives you time to think, organize your speech. So, but man, you feel drama too. <laughs> yeah. I was, you were really drawing me in, man. Uh, and it, it's a, you're passionate about what you're into. And it, it, that was, it was just, it was great talking to you. Last question. Sure. I've been doing this with all my guests. Uh, I've read 52 books or listened to 52 books, read some this year. Um, if you had, whether it's your passions or just something that was influential to you, what book recommendation could you give to our just listeners? Just one? One, half a dozen. I'm definitely going to read whatever top number one when you say first. So Okay. Um, the first one is, you're going to think it's just a hunting book, but it's not. It's called Heart's Blood and is written by David Peterson. Okay. And when people ask me, because I'm a different person than I was in my 30s, when people ask me what happened, I point to this book. It, it, it changed my life. And I've actually got the, I wrote an email to David Peterson, the, the author, and told him, I don't know if he grasped the enormity of what I was saying. It's why I'm a writer. Um, he introduced me to so many other writers in his book, uh, so many other concepts. And I'll, I'll tell you the first, I read, I've read the book totally through six times. The first three times, it pissed me off. It absolutely challenged some very deep-seated ideas in me that, that, I mean, made me angry. And, um, but I read it anyway. Read through it. Again, the first three times. I remember I'd get to these certain parts. I, I could, I'd get mad when I was getting that chapter. And I'm getting mad again. This guy's wrong. This guy's wrong, you know. But I read through it, read through it, read through it. And, man, I line up almost – across on anything you want to talk about probably with David Peterson now, the writer. Um, again, that book introduced me to other people that I wasn't aware of at the time. Uh, Aldo Leopold, Edward Abbey, Paul Shepard, uh, Wendell Berry, all these other great thinkers and writers that, that I didn't know about. Um, I was 35 when I read it and I picked it up at Barnes and Noble in Northwest Arkansas because um, I was just one hunting book and had no idea that it was going to transform. In my bookcase right now, it's the first one on the on the top row. I mean, everything else falls behind it. We got three bookcases, this is the lead bookcase. Uh, but anyway, that's the number one book. And you don't have to be a hunter to appreciate it. Now it's written from the perspective of a hunter. 
but it is way deeper, way deeper than going out killing elk or deer. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Whew. Another one, in Edward Abbey. Lord, you could read any of his books. Desert Solitaire. It's probably a great book of essays. Abbey is. Um, He's right next to David Peterson in my mind. Actually, he's probably hey, uh, a friend of mine just recommended this book, a sociologist, um, Jesse Weiss. Do you know him? Uh, I think I know the name. I don't know the person. He worked at U of O forever, and he just moved to Nebraska. But he was – this is on my list, the one you just uh, – Desert Solitaire. He oh, just, suge Solitaire. just suggested that to me. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Aldo Leopold, uh, Sand County Almanac. Um. Man, I could go through a whole – Paul Shepard, if you want to understand humanity, Paul Shepard uh, coming home to the Pleistocene. Um, this went hand-in-hand -hand with what I was learning in anthropology is when I started reading this book. Uh, you know, basically, we, we're only 10,000 years into, you know, after the Neolithic Revolution, we started farming. The prior – millions of years we were hunter gatherers that's still who we are in so many ways and so much i think of our issues and our, our problems in society are because we have forgotten i'm i'm not at all a lot of people i say this like oh you want to go back to live in a cave you know no that's not what i'm saying we've forgotten who we are and how we are intertwined into the environment that we live in uh, we've separated ourselves. We've made this really big abstract world and we've completely forgot about the real world for the most part. So if we go back to visit on vacation or for fun or something like that, if we've forgotten that we are flesh and blood part of this world. Paul Shepard, in a very poetic way, explains all this. Um, he's a, a brilliant writer. Um, really rich stuff, though. Those, those are, what I mean, is that four? And I'll give you, I could go on all day, but I'll give you a novel to wrap up with. And it's written by a guy from the Ozarks. He's in Missouri. Brooks Blevins? Uh, nope. Uh, Daniel Woodrell. Or okay. Woodrell. He's written, he wrote one book that became a movie, Winter's Bone. I haven't seen uh, it. Okay. The movie's okay. Uh, the book's really good. And I, I think I've, I haven't read all these books, but I read most of them. But the, my favorite book, and I, I kid you not, I read this book in one day called woe to live on and um it is about these it's, it's post-civil war in the ozarks and um it's about a, a group of of men i don't really want to tell you anymore it's just i can relate to it i, I can't relate to the characters so much but I can relate to the writer because he comes from a similar, you know, he's from the Southern or from the Ozarks in Missouri. But yeah. uh, the story is so compelling and so fast. I remember I got up in the morning, it was a Saturday morning and I, only, I got the book like the day before. And I thought, well, I'm going to sit here and drink my coffee and I'm going to read a chapter. I got halfway through the chapter and I was like, no, nope, I'm going to read this damn thing today. I don't care if it takes me all day. And I didn't do anything else. I read the book. All right. In one day. It's on uh, Audible, so uh, I've, okay. got, I've got it on my list now. So it was it was fantastic, and I would I would recommend any of Woodrell stuff, and especially if you're you know from this area, the way he writes and the way he speaks, and a lot of his perspective comes from the same place you got your perspective. 
it, it's I can relate so much with what he's what he's writing, right? How he's saying it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Those would be my recommendations off the top of my head. Like I said, I got a whole list of others I could I could go on for days about books, but well, yeah, awesome, Johnny. Well, thanks, man. And uh, hopefully this won't be our last conversation. I, I was looking forward to talking to you and it's it's been great, man. I really appreciate you sitting down and taking the time. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I really did. All right. Well, uh, when I get this edited, I will uh, shoot you over a link if you want to give it a share. And uh, again, uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again on down the road. Sounds good, man. All right, man. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Brian. See you.